show us in measurable terms what are you doing specifically for the religious minorities who are the most vulnerable from their perspective in the Iraqi context. Welcome to Foreign Policy. I'm Sharon Weinberger, Executive Editor for News, and you're listening to the ER. I'm in Washington today, and joining me in the studio is FP Fellow Reese Dubin and Sarhang Hamasaid, the Director of Middle East Programs at the United States Institute of Peace. Last week, Foreign Policy published a piece detailing Vice President Mike Pence's vision to grant more U.S. aid to Christians and religious minorities in Iraq against the advice of officials at the State Department and others at the United Nations who initially feared the move could backfire. In the piece, Reese and foreign policy reporter Dan DeLuce detailed how the administration, prompted in part by Vice President Mike Pence's strong links to Christian advocacy groups, recently clashed with the United Nations Development Program over how to spend aid funds in Iraq, insisting more resources be channeled to Christian communities and other minority groups. The administration rejected UNDP's assessment and that of some officials at the State Department that the aid should be focused on more popular areas around the war-damaged city of Mosul. So I wanted to start off by asking, what is the state of minority communities in Iraq? How are they affected by the Islamic State's presence? And then what is the situation for them now? Well, first of all, thank you for having me. The religious minorities in Iraq in a very dire condition, and actually their situation has been in constant uh, state of decline in the past, uh, over over a decade now. The attacks by al-Qaeda and recently by ISIS have meant that they were pushed out of their areas and their numbers in Iraq Iraq, uh, significantly declined from about 1.5 million around 2003 now to um, uh, under a quarter of a million for the Christians, and that's an estimate. So their areas uh, have been mostly controlled by ISIS. Uh, It has been liberated, but the religious minorities remain displaced for the most part. And what sort of aid is needed in these areas, whether for those communities or simply people in the region? What sort of things are most needed? Well, a range of things, starting with security, uh, security in terms of physical security for them to be able to trust the security forces on the ground to feel protected. Second, uh, rebuilding the infrastructure that was destroyed as a result of the fight, either destroyed by the uh, Islamic State, by ISIS, or as a result of the liberation uh, uh, conflict. And third, enabling the economy of the area to to, to be rebuilt because these are communities that are depending on trade and agriculture and other aspects that are interdependent with other areas of the Nineveh Plain and others where there are minority-rich areas. And the other aspect is actually the social, restoring the social cohesion of the area. Uh, the religious minorities felt that they were abandoned by um, the Iraqi security forces, by the Kurdish Peshmerga, but most importantly, by their neighbors, the Sunni Arab tribes in the area. They felt that they were the ones who facilitated the attack of ISIS. And that is an area that remains uh, and will continue to be a source of tension uh, moving forward. So I think in theory, when one looks at the idea of providing aid for these groups, it sounds fine. But I remember when the dispute was first described to me by an official at the State Department over how these funds were being spent, what the official said to me is they really felt like they were under a lot of pressure from um, the vice president's office and also from the head of USAID to target specifically specific religious groups, and in particular the Christians. Is that something that that was a concern that you've heard about? 
Well, the pressure um, from the minorities on the U.S. government and on the international community also is not a new story. They have uh, felt that they were marginalized in Iraq. They were under threat, and they have been making the case for administration after administration to so that they are pr- prioritized. More recently, they feel that the liberation and the threats that uh, did not materialize in the sense that will enable them to go home. The series of challenges that I mentioned, even though there are lines of efforts by the Iraqi government, the Kurdistan regional government, the international community, they do not feel that by they mean the religious minorities. They don't feel it sufficiently addresses their needs for them to be able to go home safely. So their sense of urgency has been increasing as they have been seeing uh, probably progress on certain areas in terms of uh, pushing the Islamic State out, still not able to return along the years, and especially in the past few years, seeing their numbers uh, constantly declining, their people from their communities leaving the country. So that sense of pressure is has translated into a lot of advocacy work here on Capitol Hill with the U.S. government. And the pressure has gone to the extent that said, okay, where the religious minorities and their advocates say, show us in measurable terms, uh, how, what are you doing specifically for the religious minorities who are the most vulnerable from their perspective in the Iraqi context? But that led also to a dispute among different agencies and officials about how to administer the aid. Reese, can you talk a little bit about what people were telling you when you spoke to them for the article about some of those concerns? Yeah, certainly. I think one of the biggest distinctions that came about in this current debate over aid was the distinction between direct and indirect aid to these communities. So in the past, much of the way that the U.S. has distributed aid for, say, stabilization efforts or some kind of reconciliation efforts in Iraq has been through UNDP, the UN Development Program in Iraq. And in those situations, the U.S. gives, say, a lump sum of last year it was $115 million, and this year it was $150 million. That money goes to UNDP, and it's then dispersed through various local NGOs by UNDP in sort of a blanket way. And one of the one of the major distinctions that we sort of came across in, in, and was announced by USAID in a press release recently was the idea that aid would instead be funneled directly from USAID, from U.S. government agencies to faith-based groups, to NGOs that have a direct connection to the U.S. And I think that was one of the, the reasons why there was this sort of debate ongoing within the bureaucracy itself was that people were concerned about the ramifications that, at the very least, the optics of the U.S. directly intervening into these very sensitive communities would have. Because I think, and this was voiced to, to both Dan and I from, you know, everybody from people within USAID and State Department down to advocates within these communities themselves who while they totally accept the fact that these communities have been hit incredibly hard by ISIS and singled out in very drastic ways. But the concern was that there was a possibility that the perception of a direct connection to the U.S. could harm these communities even further in certain ways. So there were continuous calls for both the U.S. government and others to be just incredibly careful about the way this aid is distributed. You know, in the newsroom, we joked around a bit about this story, calling it the Jesus plan, which because it, it fits into a narrative that people have of, you know, Vice President Pence being very much an advocate for Christian communities. But I guess I'm curious, how much is this debate unique to the current administration? Certainly under the George W. Bush administration, there was also interest in funding faith-based groups. I mean, is this a debate that goes on in different regions, not just in Iraq, under different administrations of how to target aid? 
Uh, I think that the, the debate is not new and it will not uh, end with this one. Uh, these issues are hard. You're talking about conflicts that have multiple layers and different communities that are affected in different ways. And uh, those who sympathize with them may have different uh, levels of sympathy with this group or that group. So there is no uh, easy answer. Uh, and it's not a black and white thing. So from a perspective of an existential threat, uh, you see the religious minorities. There, when, when somebody tells you that a Christian community uh, have seen their number drop from 1.5 million to under a quarter million. That's a strong statement. That is, no matter the amount of aid and support you have provided, it just puts you in this situation of a very frustrating results. From another angle, there are those who would say, well, uh, the Christian community and the Yazidis and other religious minorities have seen uh, their threat from outside minority communities. So the the, the application of um, uh, international community support should go to preventing uh, the recreation of another existential threat like ISIS. So their perspective is a security uh, angle. And none of these are mutually exclusive in the sense that they are interrelated. And that's what makes it extremely difficult. And if I say a few words about what uh, Reese mentioned is that within the minority communities, they do have that, uh, there is that uh, difference of opinion. There are those who uh, request more international protection. There are those who see this as a threat. So there is no easy answer to, to this question. So what happens at this point then? How is the aid administered? What are the, you know, what, what is sort of the resolution of this debate? At this point, it looks like the debate has sort of been settled in this kind of middle ground that was established a couple of weeks ago, where there's a combination of two things. One is the direct aid that is administered by USAID in the form of what's called a broad agency announcement. And this is this sort of interesting collaborative process of distributing aid that isn't often used, um, where aid is given to groups and they will oftentimes actually come together and sort of discuss and come up with these you know solutions that may not have been arrived at in other ways. And the other is a solution that was negotiated with UNDP and the U.S. government, where I believe it was $55 million of the original $150 million will be directed specifically to minority groups. And that was from this original tranche of money that was given to UNDP that originally had no caveats or no... Um, what is that for? Is it food? Is it education, rebuilding, or everything? Is that Yeah, so it's, it's everything at this point. Between the BAA, the Broad Agency Announcement, and this UNDP money, I think it can basically go to anything from stabilization efforts, which are specifically designed to build up the sort of basic infrastructure, so electricity, water, things like that, to uh, gender-based advocacy, you know, the sort of very kind of intricate reconciliation type of work that goes on in the background uh, that underpins a lot of the problems that have been going on for, for quite a while. Is this sort of aid effective, particularly addressing what you brought up, that the Yazidis were concerned that, you know, you want to make sure you don't have a reemergence of the Islamic State and that you target these communities with aid? Is aid an effective tool for this? Well, again, it depends how we define aid. If we are talking about humanitarian aid and humanitarian assistance, that is one thing. But the broader definition that uh, Reese spoke about, that when you go uh, to to talk about education and issues of reconciliation, this is a wider range of aid. And the U.S. Institute of Peace uh, has been active on supporting the religious minorities uh, in in, in a variety of ways. One, to make sure that they have the organizations, civil society organizations that would give 
voice to the concerns of the minorities in the legislative platforms of Iraq. I see that as assistance given to the minorities. Second aspect, one of the barriers to return is the social tensions uh, between the religious minorities and the Arab communities in their area. So reconciliation to making sure that they, they will not go for revenge violence and there will be not be violence is an, an, an effective means of, of support. So again, as I said, it's not black and white. It, it, it comes down to the definition and the specific programs designed to, to apply to the, the problem sets that we have. So in terms of the U.S. Institute for Peace, like what, what is the actual work they're doing? Are they bringing over people to, for training or going over there? What Can you describe the work in a little bit of detail? Sure. The U.S. Institute of Peace has invested in, in, in several tracks to support the religious minorities. And this is one uh, segment of our uh, of a broader program in Iraq. So uh, we do work with the diverse communities of Iraq, the Sunnis, the, uh, the, the Shias, the Kurds, and uh, the, the, the Turkmen and others. Uh, with the religious minorities, we, uh, we support the creation of what is called the Alliance of Iraqi Minorities. This is a coalition of non-governmental organizations that represent the broad spectrum of the, of the minorities, the Christians, the Shabak, the Yazidis, the Kakis, these uh, and others. This, this coalition engaged uh, the Iraqi government on legislation to make sure that the Iraqi government legislation will prioritize issues of the minorities. Their input is captured. They contributed to the minorities law of the Kurdistan regional government two years ago. They are working with uh, the United Nations to communicate the priorities of the, uh, the religious uh, minorities. They have been working with the international community to direct assistance uh, to the minorities. The second aspect, uh, they have been working on something called participatory budgeting. This is where actually you have, uh, despite all these problems, you, this is where you have democratic institutions in action, where the small group of, of, of organizations have been working with the provincial government of uh, Nineveh and to make sure that the priorities of the minority communities are communicated to the provincial government and that there are appropriations in the Iraqi budget for addressing their needs. The third line of work that we are working on, we've produced assessments from the perspective of the minority. So there we have five pieces of research uh, available from the, the minorities about what they, they see, the dynamics of the conflict, the drivers of the conflict and the solutions. And to take that into the practical space, uh, uh, we have shared the, those research with the policymakers in Iraq and in, in the international community. But more specifically, we have engaged on specific dialogues, reconciliation dialogues, for example, in an area around Bartilla and Hamdani and the Nineveh Plain between the Christians and the Shabak, which has been a source of tension even pre-Islamic State, and it will continue after the Islamic State, because tensions between those two sides could lead to violence, and with so many armed groups in Iraq, it could really lead to armed conflict if not managed. So these are the, some of the specifics. We are now we have two initiatives in Nineveh close to Mosul, one on Bartilla between the Christians and the Shabaks, and one on Talafar between the Sunni Turkmens and the Shia Turkmens. And so what does it involve? I mean, getting leaders together from the areas? What are, What is the actual specifics of, of what you do? Yeah, so the process would be identify community leaders, engage with them in, in private conversations where they identify the needs and the challenges, and then we take those individual meetings to collective meetings. So you can have a Christian meetings where uh, you have government leaders, uh, civil society leaders, uh, other religious leaders and community leaders come together so that you tackle the barriers to return, the sources of violence uh, from the different perspectives. And you share those with decision makers in the government, international community to help with finding for the solutions. We then on the Christian, uh, sorry, on the Shabak side, you do the same exercise 
talk to the leaders, government, tribal, um, and otherwise, and then get both sides together where they work will identify the issues of common concern and identify on solutions that both sides agree to. And is there, I mean, can you do that now? Is there enough security in the area to already go in and do those sorts of talks, or is this still in the the planning stages? This is a great question. Um, uh, the, The traditional view was that you can only do reconciliation after the fighting has stopped and people have gone home, and then you embark on that. But I think the, the conflict in Iraq and Syria and Yemen and other places have taught us you can't go after to, to this sequential view. We have actually worked with the religious minorities even when they were displaced in Erbil, in Baghdad, in Soleimania. So this journey and this work started well before their areas have been liberated. So we've been meeting them in uh, areas where they have been dis- displaced to, but we are now continuing that discussion after they have been able to go uh, home. Obviously, the recent developments in Iraq especially after the referendum of the Kurds for Independence. It complicated the security dynamics in around Mosul a little bit, uh, but our work continues. It's worthwhile to note that this kind of reconciliation work, the kind of work that's being done on the ground now, is it's both in theory and practice something that needs to be applied throughout the country. Because I think, as you noted, Sarhang, these are problems that don't only exist within minority communities, but in fact it was these sort of communal tensions that actually gave rise ultimately to the Islamic State, whether it was Sunni communities feeling disenfranchised from the central government, and in turn, you know, turning to the Islamic State as a a group that could give them enfranchisement, could give them a a sense of of belonging within a community. These are all things that ultimately need to be addressed on both the sort of micro-level reconciliation process that you're speaking of now, and also people constantly speak about or consistently speak about the need for this at sort of a national level to try to have some kind of grand bargain between different communities that have felt alienated from each other for a long time, especially since 2003 and even moving backwards. And of course, aid and humanitarian work is just one part of post-Islamic state planning. How much do you feel that the administration has a policy for sort of dealing with post-ISIS stabilization? Well, they d- definitely have a number of lines of work where they focus. So there's a, mil- a, con- a military track to continue supporting the Iraqi security forces through training, through countering terrorism and uh, things of this nature. Second, the ad- administration has been working with uh, Iraq, the Iraqi government and the United Nations and other international organizations to help Iraqi economy uh, to not collapse and actually put on a path, a viable path. So there is an upcoming uh, reconstruction uh, conference in Kuwait that will be uh, important for Iraq. The, the challenge here is that the magnitude of the problems are at, at a, such a scale. No matter the amount of assistance and support that you provide, it will still be small compared to, compared to the need. So the, the international conferences and the, the support programs, it could be a billion dollars, two billion dollars that you provide to Iraq, while the, the, the need is in tens of billions of dollars. So that challenge is something that uh, everybody is grappling with right now. The re- Construction conference in Kuwait. What do you do? You expect to be big there to be big debates there? What will be the big questions that will be raised there, do you think? The effort is part of uh, the international community's uh, attempts to help Iraq to move forward and to help uh, with reconstruction post-ISIS. I think at the beginning of the campaign, much of the focus was on the military campaign. That was a source of uh, criticism. Uh, and uh, reconstruction and stabilization and reconstruction were things that the international community said, 
these are Iraqi issues. But gradually they realize that Iraq cannot do this, the drop in, uh, in oil prices. So these conferences are important, but there is now a, a debate about how to make sure that this conference does not become just providing assistance to the Iraqi government in terms of uh, aid. How does it become a partnership where civil society can come and play a role on reconciliation so it goes beyond physical reconstruction? Second, uh, how for the private sector to play a role in terms of investments? And, and third, then continue the aid that is necessary with for, for, for internally displaced persons. But the fundamental issue is that Iraq's politics have to show enough positive signs so that the political failure will not get us back into ISIS 2.0, that uh, it will provide enough assurances for investors to come and invest. And third, not to be basically bogged down on physical reconstruction and, and forget about the social programs and uh, political programs that are necessary to prevent an ISIS 2.0. So what will be the sign of success for these sorts of programs, both in civil society and humanitarian and development? Will it be the return of, of minority communities or simply the stabilization and lack of violence? I mean, I think at a certain point it will be a combination of both. You know, you don't have communities if people aren't there. So that's sort of the, the first metric that I think people always look at. And I think it's the metric that people at UNDP and at aid agencies oftentimes use. You know, the, the figure, it's, you know, something just over 2 million people have returned home out of the 5 plus million that were displaced over the course of the, the past few years. And people like to trot out the statistic that finally more people are returning than were leaving. There was this little inflection point at which that happened. So I think that's a big part of it. Another and potentially more important factor are levels of violence. I mean, I think you, you speak to people who focus more on the counterinsurgency and counterterrorism side of post-ISIS reconstruction, post-ISIS issues in places like Iraq and Syria. And they constantly point to the fact that, you know, ISIS as a military force has been defeated at this point, but there is still a low-level insurgency that is going on, especially in places like Diyala and, and other parts of the country, where essentially violence has returned not to zero, but instead to around 2013 levels, where these sort of constant low-level strikes that don't necessarily register in a way that, you know, the battle for Mosul, say, registered, at least to the U.S. public and, and Western publics, the insurgency is still very much there. So as you spoke to, Sarhang, it's still this sort of very complex mix of military and security and reconstruction and stabilization aid that needs to be meshed together in this very complex equation that I think hasn't necessarily been struck quite right yet, but people are working very hard to make sure that it happens. And I think there's like there's concern that the you know the U.S. is oftentimes falling too far on one side or the other. Uh, and I think there's also oftentimes a perception that the U.S. Uh, U.S. policy at this point falls very hard on the military side, often to the detriment of other things. But that's once again part of this complex balance that needs to be struck. Yeah, and if I add one uh, thing to that is that we are entering an election season. So Iraq is coming into this with fresh wounds from the conflict with ISIS and with the uh, low-level insurgency that uh, Reese spoke about, the, 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 and with so many armed groups who are trying to take their energy into the political space and perpetuate their existence. The, the election campaign has not quite started yet, but once we get into that, this mix will be uh, a, a dangerous mix. Obviously, I don't want to create a fear picture. There is a p path where positive outcomes 
outcomes could come out of this. But this is an area where you, the, the mix of assistance to Iraq, the mix of um, uh, uh, topics uh, and issues that need to be addressed from the politics to the security, to the economy, to the social tensions, there are programs that need to continue. And the internet, you can't leave Iraq now. You cannot disengage from that. So um, that's an area to, to, to watch for uh, as we move forward. And coming out of that, you said you don't kind of want to be too dismal on it, but what, what are the scenarios that you're most fearful about in that? Uh, so with so many armed groups, with political competition, so it is possible that uh, political groups could resort to violence to settle political differences. With Iraq, um, with a massive destruction and the lack of uh, and the limited resources, it's possible for co- competition for services and economic opportunity. Those groups could resort to violence. Uh, there is a, the threat of revenge violence. So different. Um, I was speaking with some of our partners today about the developments around Hawija and uh, and. Anbar and, uh, and Ninoa, there, there is still threat where one tribe may, may get an attack from another tribe or another group because they either have supported the government or stayed out of the fight or they are accused, rightly or wrongly, of being a sympathizer of ISIS. So this social tensions could uh, spiral out of control if we do not apply um, the, the, the right tools. The, the positive story out of Iraq in the, in the, for the past decade or so is the investment in Iraqi civil society. So the civil society organizations, civil society leaders, tribal leaders, religious leaders. There are Iraqis who are willing to risk their lives and actually engage on those kind of dialogues. But the level of fragmentation, and we're talking about village by village, city by city reconciliation. Uh, It's a daunting work, but it is doable. There is a path uh, uh, forward for this. So you sound hopeful. (laughs) I I see a positive, I I see the positive energy. I see the sources of concern, so I'm not naive, definitely. I see the sources of concern, but I also see the positive energy if harnessed in the right way. I think we could get out of this mess, but it takes persistence, it takes patience, it takes specialized support. And do you think the United States has the patience for that? I realize it's mostly on the Iraqi government, but as well on the United States and the international community. Do you think there's the patience to see that through? Uh, Well, patience has been lacking. Uh, So uh, long term, the U.S. has been involved in Iraq for, uh, I mean, what, uh, now 15 years. Uh, But uh, it's important to say that this is not in cycles, but there are ways that we can sustain rather than uh, stop, start, stop, start. Yeah, I think... One of the things that I've heard consistently from especially former government officials is this need to focus intensely on the cohesiveness of the central government as as an entity that that is worthy of support. One of the concerns that people have voiced consistently, especially leading up into the election, is that a lot of people view it as this sort of broader bellwether for the state of Iraq moving forwards, whether it will sort of go off in this this potentially positive direction that you held out, or often this other direction, which is one of increasing fragmentation, both on a local level, both on a sectarian ethnic level, all these sort of different little potential flashpoints could blow up if the election goes in a direction that people were sort of not anticipating. Yeah. Um, and it's it's not only the Iraqis competing in that election. You yeah, have regional so. powers and international powers very much competing in that election. So it's a, it's a complex mix. So is the concern we often hear a lot about, you know, ISIS 2.0, but is that really the concern or simply sectarian strife? Is it, are what you most worried about in Islamic State 2.0 or simply the continued fragmentation? Uh, that's a great question. I, uh, I think 
my look at it is violence. Where would violence come from? Uh, so violence could come from um, an iteration of uh, the Islamic State coming out under the same name or a different name. We already see uh, different groups in different areas popping up again. So uh, the second is the violence between the armed groups, those who actually fought against ISIS. So different groups of the popular mobilization forces, uh, the, the, the Kurds and the popular, the Kurdish Peshmerga and the popular mobilization forces, the tribes and the popular mobilization forces, the tri- Sunni tribes versus Sunni tribes. So the mix of threat uh, is there. So violence is a broader question. Where would violence uh, come from? So that risk uh, continues. Um, so this is where, um, getting back to the earlier point, I, w- I was not trying to be pessimistic or optimistic. It's about where is the reality? And the reality is that you have the potential for violence and you have the potential uh, for getting out of uh, this risk. Uh, and uh, the, the, the different actors are uh, the next chapter is going to the political space through the elections and uh, the question is will they be use, uh, peaceful will they uh, usher in uh, a different political outcome it'll be interesting to see Sarhang Reese thanks for joining us and thank Thanks you everyone we'll see you next time on the ER you've been listening to Foreign Policies the ER podcast I'm Sharon Weinberger and I've been your host the program is produced by Katie Gardner and Brandon Martini For more information about FP and to subscribe to the ER and our Global Thinkers and Backstory podcasts, please visit foreignpolicy.com, iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. Thank you very much for joining us. As fall fills up with activities and obligations, even a small time saver can feel like a big help. Grammarly is an all-in-one writing tool that makes clear, concise communication easier than ever, so you can finish your work earlier and head off to family dinners, social events, and fall weddings. Grammarly is free to download and works where you do, so every project gets finished quicker. Make sure your writing is free of mistakes with Grammarly's free, comprehensive writing suggestions and get an instant take on how your message comes across with the free tone detector. Let Grammarly Premium's sentence clarity rewrites help you find the perfect words on the first try. You'll be confident writing client emails, deadline-driven reports, and presentations without staying late at the office. Get more time back in your day by writing with Grammarly. Go to Grammarly.com podcasts to sign up for a free account. Then get 20% off when you're ready to upgrade to Grammarly Premium. That's Grammarly.com slash podcasts.